Well, let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. It says in Luke chapter 24, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we pray for that to happen here and now. Would our minds be opened by the Spirit of Christ so that we can understand the scriptures and be transformed as a result? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Gabriel Barr and his sweetheart Rachel Wilson lived in colonial America in the 18th century in the town of Nutfield near Manchester in New Hampshire. They were sweethearts for 40 years. Their courtship is thought to be one of the longest courtships in the history of New England. That four-decade courtship never ended in marriage. Perhaps Gabriel Barr couldn't summon up the courage to go down on one knee. No, that wasn't the problem. Perhaps Rachel Wilson always wanted to keep her options open. No, that wasn't the problem either. The reason they could never agree to marry was because Gabriel Barr and Rachel Wilson belonged to two different Presbyterian churches in their town. They knew that if they married, they would both have to attend the same church, but those two churches did not see eye to eye. There was disunity between them. As a result, Gabriel was unwilling to leave his church to attend Rachel's, and Rachel was unwilling to leave her church to attend Gabriel's. In the words of one local history book, hence the long courtship ended only by death. It would be hard to believe that story was true if it wasn't printed in a local history book filled with dry details about names and dates and places. Even the names of the pastors of those two churches are recorded. It really does seem to be a true story. One part of the story that sadly isn't hard to believe is the part about disunited churches. 2,000 years of church history have shown that Christians find it hard to maintain unity. But today's Bible passage urges us not to shrug our shoulders about that and simply settle for disunity and division. God wants his people to live in unity. And what we learn from today's passage is that God's people are in fact united. Real Christians are already united. Where there are outward divisions between real Christians, those divisions don't reflect the deeper spiritual unity that is already in place. And so the challenge of Christian unity is the challenge of expressing in practice what is already true of us. We are, in fact, united in Christ. There are two different reconciliations in today's passage, a horizontal reconciliation among people and a vertical reconciliation between people and God. Both reconciliations were necessary for true unity among God's people to be possible. 
We're going to look at each in turn during this sermon, beginning with the horizontal reconciliation, and that's the first of our two headings this morning. Horizontal reconciliation. In verses 11 and 12, two separate groups are contrasted. Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, and Israelites, Jewish people. And Paul's point in those verses, verses 11 and 12, is that before Jesus, before his life and death and resurrection, those two groups simply could not come together. They were irreconcilable. Paul says in verse 12 that the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That meant the Gentiles lacked all the good things the Israelite community enjoyed. Paul then goes on to set out some examples of those good things. He says the Gentiles were separated from Christ. In other words, they weren't waiting with excited anticipation for God's saviour king. The Israelites were waiting, the Gentiles weren't. The Gentiles were also strangers to the covenants of promise, according to verse 12. God's covenants are his deals, his verbal agreements. Israel was on board with those deals, the Gentiles weren't. So at the end of verse 12, Paul reaches the conclusion that before Jesus, the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world. The New Bible Commentary puts it like this. Hopes and gods they may have had in plenty, but these would have proved empty, for the Gentiles were without the true God and the hope he gave. End quote. From the point of view of the Gentiles, the Israelite community at that time was rather like an exclusive airport lounge. I'm told the United Polaris Lounge at San Francisco International Airport has nap rooms, shower suites, barista-made coffee, and a restaurant where you can choose whatever you want from the menu for free but it's not easy to gain entry to that United Polaris Lounge. You can only gain entry if you're flying business class or first class into or out of the airport on that same day. Well, speaking personally, I am not going to be flying business class anytime soon. If I wanted to gain access to that airport lounge, I'd really need a new career, a new way of life. And that's not going to happen. I don't want it to happen. So all I can do is look wistfully at San Francisco Airport's United Polaris Lounge, knowing that realistically I'll never get in. It was like that with the Israelite community from the Gentiles' point of view. The Israelite community, with all the divine blessings it enjoyed, was similarly out of reach for Gentiles, realistically speaking, before Jesus came. If Gentiles had wanted to get in, they could have done so, but they would have had to change their entire way of life. They would have had to become Jewish, following all the customs and laws of the people of Israel. Now, sometimes that did happen, praise God. It happened with Rahab and her family, 
according to Joshua chapter 6. It also happened with Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. So Israel wasn't entirely exclusive. The doors weren't locked to outsiders. In our congregational reading earlier in the service, we heard an invitation issued by Israel to the other nations. But becoming Jewish was unrealistic for the vast majority of Gentiles. They might look wistfully at the benefits that the Israelite community enjoyed, but realistically those benefits were out of reach for them. And you might be wondering why God set things up like that. After all, the the benefits Paul lists in verse 12 are infinitely more desirable and significant than those United Polaris Lounge attractions. Paul says the Gentiles were without hope and without God. Why would God set things up like that? The answer is that in God's wisdom, the only way to prepare the world for the arrival of his saviour king was to prepare one nation for the king's arrival. Israel's prophecies, its sacrificial system, its priesthood, those covenants mentioned earlier, everything about Israel pointed forward to the Messiah so that he would be recognised when he arrived. God couldn't send his saviour into the world in an out-of-the-blue way. No one would have understood who he was or what he had been sent to do. And so God prepared one nation, a nation that had to be kept separate from all the other nations. Now, one of the consequences of this separation between Gentiles and Israelites was hostility between the two groups. That hostility wasn't commanded by God, and we heard Israel at its best in that congregational reading from Psalm 96. The hostility wasn't commanded by God. It was something that developed along the way. Paul speaks of the dividing wall of hostility at the end of verse 14. The dividing wall of hostility. And we see a hint of that hostility in verse 11, where Paul says the Jewish people called the Gentile world the uncircumcision, while calling themselves the circumcision. They used those names because they practiced male circumcision, while the gentle world, Gentile world, generally speaking, didn't practice it. But if you think about it, that nickname given by the Jewish people to the rest of the world, the uncircumcision. It's not a neutral nickname. In the Old Testament, what's uncircumcised is unclean. And so by calling the rest of the world the uncircumcision, the Jewish people at that time were highlighting the unclean otherness of the Gentiles. That kind of negative name-calling has the effect of fueling hostility. Hostility also went in the other direction. For example, the book of Esther in the Old Testament tells the story of Haman's scheme for destroying the entire Jewish people. Thankfully, it came to nothing due to the bravery of Queen Esther, the Jewish bride of the Persian 
emperor at that time. So the hostility went in both directions. And it seemed set to continue for as long as there were Jews and as long as there were Gentiles. But by this point in the book of Ephesians, we've already had a plot spoiler. Paul has already told us that God's end goal is unity. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has, quote, set forth a plan for the fullness of time. What's the plan? Ephesians 1 verse 10, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in Christ. That's the plot spoiler. We've been told in advance in Ephesians chapter 1 that the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews, will come to an end in Christ. Jesus Christ, God's saviour king, will somehow bring these two hostile parties together. And in verses 13, 14 and 15, we find out how he did it. Let's look down, please, to verse 13, and I'll read from there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The last word of that long quotation is peace, a very comforting and encouraging word. But earlier in the quotation, there's a troubling and disturbing word, blood. Peace between the Israelites and the Gentiles was brought about by blood. God reconciled those two groups by the blood of Jesus, his son. Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet is about two families in the Italian town of Verona. Romeo's family, the Montagues, and Juliet's family, the Capulets. Those two families are sworn enemies. In fact, the play begins with a fierce sword fight between the two households. The prince of Verona, who is utterly fed up with this feud between two of the families in his town, arrives on the scene and separates the swordsmen, saying, on pain of torture, from those bloody hands, throw your mistempered weapons to the ground. But all the prince can do is order a temporary truce. He doesn't have the power to bring about true reconciliation between the two families. And yet by the end of the play, the Montagues and the Capulets are reconciled. If you've never seen the play, please don't be annoyed with me for revealing the ending because Shakespeare himself reveals it at the start of the play in a, a poem that's recited at the beginning. And that same poem tells the audience what it is that will reconcile those two feuding families, it's blood. The deaths of Romeo and Juliet. The continuance of their parents' rage naught could remove, we're told in the opening poem, but their children's end. The deaths of Romeo and Juliet proved to be the only thing capable of reconciling their families. In a similar way, the peace Paul speaks of at the end of verse 15, is only attained through blood, through death. 
Let's take another look at verse 13. Paul is speaking to the Gentiles about their previous alienation from the Israelites, and he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. It was Jesus Christ's blood that brought the Gentiles near to the Israelites. And when it says near in verse 13, it means near in the same way that two people hugging are near to each other because Paul goes on to say in verse 14, he has made us both one. He has made Jews and Gentiles one. Now in Romeo and Juliet, it's the crushing sense of loss that draws the Montagues and Capulets together. Death reconciles them because of their shared grief. But the death of Jesus operates in a different way. After Paul says that Jesus has made us both one, in verse 14, he goes on to explain how exactly he's made us both one. We'll pick it up in the middle of verse 14. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. There was a dividing wall of hostility that isn't there anymore. Where's it gone? It's been broken down in Jesus' flesh, through Jesus' death. Paul's talking in verse 15 about the law of Moses when he speaks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus' death on the cross abolishes that law because his death means it's no longer necessary to keep all of those commands to please God. Let's be clear right away. Jesus' death doesn't abolish the law in every sense. Paul himself says in another of his letters, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's from Romans chapter 3. The law of Moses has lots of ongoing usefulness. But it's no longer necessary to keep every single command to please God. Jesus' death launches a new covenant which doesn't require people to obey every command in the law of Moses. And that makes unity possible, achievable, between Gentiles and Israelites. Under the previous covenant, the Israelites were obliged to obey all the commands given to Moses, commands to do with food and clothing and sacrifice and many other areas of life. As we've seen, those commands have the effect of separating the Israelite community from the rest of the world. But since the Saviour came, once he came, the situation changed. Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly, and through his death he paid the penalty for law-breaking. That double ministry, perfect life, and penalty-paying death paved the way for a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and mankind. The new covenant in my blood, Jesus says in those words we hear every Holy Communion service. The new covenant in my blood, Jesus says, through my blood, by means of my blood. Now that Jesus has come, 
the ground rules have changed and Gentiles and Jews can come together as one. It's worth saying the new covenant isn't law-free. We'll come across plenty of commands later in Ephesians, and they're often drawn from the law of Moses. But they're no longer designed to separate out one nation from all the others. And what do we find when we look around the world to see the effect, the impact, the outworking of the new covenant? We find people in every nation worshipping the God of the Bible through Jesus, whereas previously only one nation worshipped him. That's the effect of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. At the end of verse 15, Paul goes as far as to say that Christ has created one new man in place of the two. That's a very bold thing for Paul to say because elsewhere Paul makes it clear the Gentile-Israelite distinction is ongoing. Distinction, not division. Distinction. Paul says in Romans 11, I am an Israelite. His identity as an Israelite wasn't erased when he began following Jesus. But here in Ephesians, Paul is so eager to stress the new unity that Gentiles and Israelites have with one another that he speaks about Christ creating one new man in place of the two. But it's vital to notice two words in the middle of verse 15, in himself in himself. Christ creates this one new man in himself. Jesus was Jewish. He was the king of Israel. But he was more than Jewish. He was also a second Adam. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just as the first Adam represented all of humanity, the same is true of Jesus, the last Adam. His invitation to relationship with God is issued to everyone. And that brings us to the second of our two reconciliations. We've been thinking about the horizontal reconciliation between Gentiles and Israelites, which is the main theme of this passage. But there is another reconciliation in view, the vertical reconciliation between humanity and God. That's our second heading, vertical reconciliation. We'll look at this more briefly and then we'll spend some time considering the life lessons that we should learn as a result of everything we've been thinking about. You can see the theme of vertical reconciliation in verse 16. Paul is speaking about what Jesus achieved through his blood, through his death. He's just said that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And now in verse 16, he says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Both Gentiles and Jews needed to be reconciled to God through the cross. It's true that the Jews enjoyed fellowship with God before Jesus came. We thought about that earlier when we were looking at verse 12. But that fellowship was enjoyed because the cross was coming. 
Both Gentiles and Jews needed to be reconciled to God through Jesus' penalty-paying death. Without that death, both groups would be estranged from God. I wonder if you've ever been estranged from an authority figure, an authority figure in your life, someone with power over you. In my first two years at high school, I used to get into trouble a lot. I was a pain in the neck for my teachers. And one day I was summoned by a teacher called the Lower Master. The headmaster dealt with the top two grades. The Lower Master dealt with the younger boys like me. And he summoned me to his office and said to me, you know what your problem is, Howard? I said something like, no, sir. And he went on, your problem is, you're arrogant. That diagnosis made an impression on me. I still remember it all these years later. But his tone of voice made a bigger impression on me. He was angry. Angry with the kind of anger that can't be diffused by saying with a smile, I'm sorry, sir, it won't happen again, I promise. I knew he was rightly angry. It was clear to me that he and I were not on good terms. And that was my fault. It was because of my behavior at his school. Now, when you're not on good terms with someone who is in authority over you, it's a bad situation to be in. They can make life difficult for you. And if you're genuinely at fault, as I was back at high school, It's right for the authority figure to make life difficult for you. It has to be done for the sake of justice. That is how it was for the human race with God. And without Christ, that's how it would have remained. We were naturally estranged from God. We were not on good terms with our own creator. And left to ourselves there would be no way for us to get back onto good terms with him because we all fall short of his holy, pure, blameless standards. The seriousness of the situation cannot be exaggerated. Left to ourselves, reconciliation with God was absolutely impossible. The only way reconciliation could come about between God and us would be if he reached out his hand to us. But how could he reach out his hand to us without ignoring our sin, which would be unjust? He did it, verse 16 says, in one body through the cross. That body was the body of Christ, God's Son. God reached out his hand at his own expense, both the expense of a father offering up his son and the expense of the son willingly offering up himself. It was the only way reconciliation could come about. Only the son of God could keep God's law perfectly. Only the son of God could pay the penalty for other people's law breaking. We see the extent of God's desire for reconciliation with us, the extent of his love for us in the body on the cross.
that pain-racked, punishment-receiving body reconciles us to our Creator. That is how God reached out his hand to us for reconciliation. And it's possible there's someone listening today who hasn't yet reached out their hand in response. The reconciliation God offers isn't automatic. It needs to be received through faith. God has sacrificially reached out his hand to you. You now need to join your hand to his through faith through trusting in this reconciliation offer. Paul is writing to believers the peace with God that Paul speaks of in verse 17 and the access to God that Paul speaks of in verse 18. They're blessings for believers. If you're not yet a believer, please reach out in faith to join hands with God, who reached out his hand first at such great cost to himself. Well, what about those of us who have already done that? Which may be all of us here today. How should we respond to what God has done in Christ to bring about both vertical reconciliation and the horizontal reconciliation we were thinking about earlier? There is a vision in this passage that we need to catch. And that vision is for Christian unity. Paul began by addressing Gentile believers in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, he says. And in the final paragraph, verses 19 through 22, he's still addressing those Gentile believers. He wants to persuade them that they truly belong. That final paragraph is the inverse of the first paragraph, verses 11 and 12. Whereas once they were strangers and aliens, now, Paul says, in verse 19, these Gentile believers are fellow citizens with the saints, with the Jewish believers in Jesus. More than that, they are members of God's household, which is another way of saying they belong to God's family. In verses 21 and 22, Paul likens the universal church to a temple, Jesus has the place of greatest importance. He's the cornerstone, the corner block that ancient builders used to get the front and side of a building properly lined up. And uh, so he has a special status in the building, a very special status. The apostles and prophets, Paul says, also have a special status. They're the foundation. That's because before the New Testament was attached to the Old Testament, The apostles and prophets revealed God's word to the church. But once the cornerstone is in place and the foundation is in place, all that's needed are lots of regular blocks of stone. Whether Jewish blocks or Gentile blocks, they'll contribute equally to the building up of this new temple. Now, all of those images are pictures of unity. God has one citizenry, one family, and one temple in which he dwells. So real Christians, whether Gentile or Jewish, whether Democrat or Republican, whether black or white, whether Mets fans or Yankee fans, and I don't find it easy to say that, but it's true. 
whether Mets fans or Yankees fans, we're all in the one citizenry, the one family, and the one temple. There are sometimes outward divisions between real Christians. And sometimes those outward divisions are necessary. I think it's helpful to have a category of impaired fellowship where we recognize that deep down we have spiritual unity with another Christian, but for a certain reason, that fellowship needs to be impaired. Sometimes those situations happen. I can think of Christian leaders in Britain who, to my knowledge, are tolerating anti-Semitism, and I consider myself to have impaired fellowship with those Christian leaders. They are real Christians. On the deepest level, I'm united with them in Christ, but the fellowship is impaired because I think what they're doing is seriously wrong. Earlier this year, there was the horrendous scandal of sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. And as that scandal was unfolding, there must have been situations where real Christians had to consider themselves in impaired fellowship with other real Christians who weren't doing what they should have been doing to put that scandal right much sooner than they did. So sometimes outward divisions are necessary, and this category of impaired fellowship can help us. But below those outward divisions, there is true spiritual unity in Christ. And we pray and hope and work towards the end of outward division and the expression of the unity that is actually there. Surely, once we see this deep spiritual unity in today's passage, we'll catch a vision for outward unity among God's people, for praying for it and working towards it as best we can. I began this sermon with an exasperating example of outward disunity, those feuding churches in New Hampshire, which led to that 40-year courtship. We're going to close with an inspiring example of outward unity based on deep unity. And I hope this will serve as an inspiration for us. Chuck Colson was a member of the Nixon administration at the time of Watergate. He was himself deeply involved with Watergate to the extent that he was ultimately sent to prison. But as that was unfolding, he became a believer in Jesus. And after he put his trust in Christ, he was told by one of his new Christian friends, you'll want to meet Senator Hughes. Harold is a tremendous Christian. Here's what Chuck Colson says in his autobiography, Born Again. I laughed. Harold Hughes won't want to meet me. From what I've heard, he considers me the number one menace in America. He's anti-war, that was the Vietnam War, anti-Nixon, anti-Colson, and we couldn't be farther apart. That doesn't matter now, 
Doug continued. Doug is Chuck Colson's friend. That doesn't matter now, Doug continued with unabated exuberance. You are telling me, Chuck Colson replies, that because I've accepted Christ, Harold Hughes, just like that, wants to be a friend. I shook my head in disbelief. But this mutual friend, Doug Coe, sets up a meeting between Chuck Colson and Senator Harold Hughes and a few others. Here's how it unfolded. My, my encounter with Senator Harold Hughes was arranged for an evening in late September. Harold, I later learned, had stoutly resisted the idea when Doug Coe first called him to suggest it. There isn't anyone I dislike more than Chuck Colson. I'm against everything he stands for. You know that, Doug, he protested. Before Hughes hung up, Doug gently suggested that the senator's attitude was hardly Christ-like. The next day, Hughes called back and with a weary sigh, relented. All right, Doug, you set it up. So that was from Harold Hughes's side of things. The meeting happens. Here's how Chuck Colson tells the story. It was all so new to me, I found myself squirming in my chair. I sensed that Hughes was becoming a little impatient too. Everyone there knew the two of us would have our confrontation sooner or later. But I was not prepared to have Harold Hughes abruptly, abruptly put me on stage. Chuck, he said, they tell me you have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Would you tell us about it? Chuck Colson then tells the story of how he came to believe in Jesus. And he finishes his story with these words. As a new Christian, I have everything to learn. I know that. I'm grateful for any help you can give me. For a moment, there was silence. Harold whose face had been enigmatic while I talked, suddenly lifted both hands in the air and brought them down hard on his knees. That's all I need to know. Chuck, you have accepted Jesus and he has forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now as my brother in Christ. I will stand with you, defend you anywhere and trust you with anything I have. Colson says, I was overwhelmed, so astonished, in fact, that I could only utter a feeble, thank you. In all my life, no one had ever been so warm and loving to me outside of my family. And now it was coming from a man who had loathed me for years and whom I had known for barely two hours. And that's the end of the quotation. And that is Christian unity. We can have that outward warmth and love for one another because we're already one in Christ. That's the spiritual reality. He's brought us together in himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are not estranged from you, alienated from you. But because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, the penalty for all our law-breaking has been paid. 
our sins have been forgiven and we can enjoy fellowship with you eternally. Thank you that because of Jesus' death, we can also have Christian unity with one another. It's already there because of what Christ has done. Please help us catch the vision for expressing in practice, in action, what is already true through Jesus. Show us ways in which we can do that, we pray. Give us the strength we need to reach out just as you reached out to us in Jesus. Amen.